0: You're listening to the Child Safeguarding Podcast by Pointing Consulting and Advisory.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Child Safeguarding Podcast by PCA. Uh, for the first time on the Child Safeguarding Podcast, I'm joined by two guests today. So I'd like to welcome Kim Dickinson and Phil uh, Durgerton. Thank you very much for joining me.
2: Thank you, Thank you for having us.
1: Excellent, so uh, Kim Dickinson is a Safeguarding and Child Protection Consultant in New Zealand. She has worked for the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children in the UK, uh, both of New Zealand's leading child protection charities and YMCA in New Zealand and has founded Holistic Safeguarding in New Zealand. Welcome Kim.
0: Thank you, thank you.
1: And Phil is the National Executive Safeguarding Children, Young People and Adults for YMCA Australia. Phil has held many child safeguarding roles in the UK including also working for the NSPCC uh, in the UK, Safeguarding Manager for Lawn Tennis Association, Head of Safeguarding for the Arsenal Football Club, Executive Manager, Safeguarding Quality, Assurance and Governance for the Premier League before heading over to Australia where he has settled in Melbourne and is the National Executive for Safeguarding uh, and also the comp- uh, Company Director and the Director of uh, Safeguarding in Sport at Lime Culture Community Interest Company. Welcome, Phil. Thanks, Bob. Uh, to get started, Kim, can you tell me about where you work and your current role, please?
0: Yeah, uh, sure. So I've started my own business called Holistic Safeguarding, um, and basically serve all of New Zealand. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm based in Hamilton, which is in the North Island, um, but my services cover North and South Island.
1: Awesome. Um, and uh, do you have a particular niche that you like to work in, or a particular sector uh, that you like to work in? Uh,
0: not necessarily. I, <laughs> I'm. I'm. My whole career has been multi-agency uh, support, mm-hmm. so very much keep that to the business. I suppose my niche is making sure that provisions are holistic, so that we look at all aspects of an organization's needs, including if they're just focusing on one particular solution, we make sure that that solution encompasses all of what it needs to, um, but also very much into tailored support. So whilst I serve a multi-agency audience, I make sure that what I provide is very tailored to the specific vulnerabilities that that sector or that audience might be facing, for example.
1: Yeah, awesome. I think it's really important to, to make sure we are providing a, a bespoke service for the actual uh, organization or client that we're working with. Yeah. I do see sometimes that there are um, the ability just to, to I guess, purchase uh, a, a, a template that is designed for either an entire sector or just anyone who's able to find it. Mm. Uh, and without doing that individual direct work, it's, it's often not going to be fit for purpose yeah. uh, for that particular organization
0: yeah exactly yeah i think it's interesting that you mentioned templates there actually because that's some of the work that i've been doing with some of the customers has been Mm -hmm. looking at almost like an interactive child protection policy template so Mm -hmm. they have resources to provide to their sector um but their sector can still tailor it to their particular principles or needs and things like that but the organization um they're confident in there being a baseline standard of practice across. So, I think you can you can blend the two. You know, you can get the templates, you can get the resources, but it still needs that insight and tailoring, as you say, to them. Yeah. You know.
1: Yeah, definitely agree that it needs that, that extra piece on the end. It's not enough yeah. to just find something and, and just, just run with it. We'll it just implement yeah. this how it is. You've, organizations really need to stop and think about if it is actually going to be suitable and if they do need to make some changes to make sure it's actually meeting their needs and, and doing what they think it's doing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, and Phil, same question for you. Can you tell us about your current role and uh, and their interest in, in child safeguarding?
2: Yeah, perfect. My current role is with the YMCA in Australia, so I head up the National Safeguarding Unit, which is a central function, effectively, which aims to support our member associations. So we have 14 member associations across Australia um, in building capacity, support, and resources around safeguarding children, young people, um, and adults. So very much a strategic approach to our response as an organization to safeguarding by embedding Australia's 10 national principles but also ensuring that international best practice and learning is embedded amongst all of our services because we provide services to children in early years, out of school hours care, sport and recreation and youth. So we have a really diverse range in very diverse communities. So that's kind of my role at the moment and which I'm leading with. And I also am a company director for Lyme Culture, which is an international mm-hmm. sexual violence and, and safeguarding organization where I head up their safeguarding and sport function working with international bodies like the International Olympic Committee and Sport England um, around advising what safeguarding should look like from an international approach, um, particularly understanding different cultures and communities as well. As well.
1: Awesome, thank you. That sounds really exciting. Uh, and I think if my memory serves, uh, and I could be wrong, so feel free to, mm-hmm. to let me know if I am, that you might've uh, come over from, from the UK specifically for this YMCA position. Is that, am I right there? <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's correct. So you'll probably hear from <laughs> mine and Kim's accents that uh, <laughs> we are from over the pond. and um, Yeah, definitely. I worked with Kim previously as well, which we'll talk later about, which is great. But yeah, I, I moved over from the, the UK for this role. They asked whether to come of set up a, a unit for an organisation like the YMCA, um, which is kind of like a shared service model um, mm. to see and pilot that really, to see how does a central body effectively help implement and change practice within your local communities, all the way in WA to the NT, Tasmania and beyond. So, um, so yes, yeah, so it's been exciting. Um, sadly moved over during lockdown. i well, only been here a few months and then lockdown hit, so it's been a, an interesting ride, but no, absolutely <laughs> loving the role.
3: Yeah,
1: I will, um, I guess, just, just call out, just talk to that little point there that we're recording this in, when is it, um, the, oh, almost the middle of August, wow, time mm-hmm. flies, <laughs> which is uh, still during the, the coronavirus period because the these episodes will be coming out monthly so um, it probably will be a little bit delayed, hopefully, um, by the time it does come out because you are in Melbourne, um, you will be back to, to your regular lifestyle. Uh, I'm trying not to say business as usual. I hope we don't go back to business as usual. Mm. I hope there's some positive change that comes from from all of this and we learn some new ways of doing things. But, yeah, just for people listening, this this probably is a little bit um, behind. So, Phil, right mm. now is one one week in, I think, to the extended Melbourne lockdown Um no fun. Yeah. <laughs> and and no Kim fun. is from New Zealand, so oh. um, New Zealand had a slightly different strategy. So, so Kim, yeah. I don't believe you're in any form of lockdown at the well,
0: moment. Well, not not really as such. We are what they call on a level one, but we have had 100 days uh, free of community transmissions. So, um, yeah, we're in a really good place and we did have a pretty intense lockdown at the beginning. Mm. Um, mm. However, they're still making sure that we just don't get complacent and that we're ready for potentially another community risk, so to speak. Because that risk is still there.
1: Yeah, alert but not alarmed.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. But yeah, definitely uh, celebrating a bit more freedom than (laughs) for
1: I guess in doing my my background for this episode, uh, I reached out to Kim first to see if Kim would like to to be on, uh, and it was Kim's idea, or Kim's suggestion that I might like to invite Phil. So first, thank, thank you. you very much uh, for that suggestion, Kim. So I would I would like to hear about how you two met in your professional lives. It seems like they might have crossed, uh, your careers might have crossed over a couple of times.
0: Yeah, yeah, mm. sure. The, who, from me first, or? From-
1: sure, That's, yep, that'll do. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: yeah, well, basically, as you say, I've like, known Phil for a while, and, and I knew um, that you and I were going to catch up on some of the things that we wanted to talk about, and I just thought it'd be really good to link Phil in, given that Australia perspective, and also the sports side of things. So. But mm. yeah, I passed across um, at NSPCC. Worst mm-hmm. day of my life, and no. <laughs> 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 I mean, I was like, oh, here we go. Yeah, is <laughs> the gossip. <laughs> so, but no. Um, Finn and I just clicked from the outset. You'll hear Phil's laugh, and there's no way of not clicking with that, basically. And um, and and we've just shared very similar, um, not only perspectives around safeguarding, but sort of sector in, interest groups as well. Uh, so. Okay um phil can tell you a bit more about his background Mm. but he worked with offenders as i did education which was another sector i worked with quite a lot Mm. um and sports obviously evolved from there so we spent a lot of time on the road together doing training events and consultancy Mm. stuff and um yeah it's a very intense job because you are away from home quite a lot so Mm. you do develop very strong bonds and um yeah, you know, feels pretty much like family really. So mm. long standing roots.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Anything anything yeah. from your end, Phil, you want to add to that? No, definitely, and I
2: think that concept that Kim said is like family. You do we spent probably four years on a in a job together on the road, traveling around changing the landscape in the UK in terms of safeguarding and I think Kim and I are connected and you'll probably see this in this space. Um I mean, this isn't a call out but sometimes there's a but you can start to see sort of suppose a rogue safeguarding trade being developed and my, my concept around that is that it's, it is an industry now and it is a business and um mm. in the uk that came like that a, a number of years ago when kim and i were there and i think very much with kim's perspective what i learned and loved with kim's approach is that we, we kind of talked the same language which was keeping children front and center everything you do um and yes there's some financial implications to providing services but it was very much with kim's approach was around with mine was that actually advising organizations to holistically change their organization whereas sometimes you start to see that people start to do things just because in the best interest of their business rather than the child so i think that's kind of how yeah. we we particularly um connected and i know kim led a huge project in the uk um which is around the aviation industry and developing some resources and training and support around changing aviation and child protection whilst flying which a lot of people thought wouldn't happen and yeah, I sort of admired Kim's approach to that, and ever since then we've been really close and, and good friends and family, as we say.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh wow! And then independently moving over to this this corner of the world, mm-hmm. and yeah. just, just happened to be nearby, in yeah. neighboring countries. I know,
0: yeah. I know. Actually, it looks quite weird when you look at it. <laughs> 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 yeah. Never really thought of it that way. No, no, no. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, some oh. sort of hidden love story that we followed. <laughs> <it from> <laughs> that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the, um, the time zones are, are much more conducive between Australia and New Zealand to maintaining a, a connection than in between Australia yeah. or, or New Zealand and the UK, where almost yeah. opposite with the UK. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah, no, but I mean, I must admit, it's lovely to have Phil, you know, the other side of the pond. So, to speak. so, um, because certainly even during like COVID times, and things like that. I mean, it's a long distance from friends and family anyway, but particularly, mm. you know, when your country's on lockdown and things, you can feel really quite isolated. So
3: mm-hmm.
0: having those sort of old school networks right near you and that you are able to connect with it is lovely and certainly for me on a safeguarding element having someone that just knows the landscape and thinks in the same way as me and Them at the end of the phone and not having to wait until, yeah, oh, it's their morning, it's my evening, and all that
1: Mm. kind of stuff. You can just pick up the phone, it's lovely. Great. Mm. Um, so you mentioned there quite that you worked for, I think you said about four years together at the NSPCC. Mm. Um, so there you'll be able to tell me a lot more about them than, than i could tell you but um, they're a really well established and, and very well regarded organization in the uk uh, and they've produced a wealth of resources and i often uh, recommend them uh, to my clients um, to gain access to and just through general conversation and uh, they have a lot of information that's available on their website and a lot of um, reports and resources and i think even some training and things like that um, so i'm really interested to hear some feedback from the inside of that organization about um, what led you both to work there in the first place and, and some of the highlights and, and I guess just your general experiences uh, with the organization. Yeah, uh, um, Phil, maybe you can go first this time. Yeah, happy,
2: happy to jump in there. And um, absolutely, I think in the UK at the time, the NSPCC was kind of, her, sort of heralded as that, that big being and that big beast, which really was about ending cruelty to children. That was always their approach, which mm. was absolutely fundamental. And I think that's what definitely led me and I suppose with Kim there as well was that approach to ending cruelty and and their, their their vision, even though you know you can never end cruelty to children was that you can't settle for anything less. So it was very bold, heroic, which I think sits with my value set and why I aspired to work in such an organization. And they had a really good reach um, across sectors. So they definitely worked across education. They'd moved in, had in a child protection and sport unit, which had been set up and funded a voluntary sector but also had frontline therapeutic services, which worked and engaged with children and families to change behaviors. So that learning could be re-put back into other parts of the organization. Um, and then fundamentally, which I still think is the, the kind of crux for the NSPCC for me, which I loved was Childline and still sits there. The equivalent of the Kids Helpline in, in Australia. Um, and yeah. I know that model was based on, on Childline and um, just that kind of concept around bringing good data and actually hearing children's voices and bringing that useful, voice back into um into sort of training and learning which you could which you do you kind of miss and i i suppose i've noticed that in that concept between the difference between the uk and australia and potentially new zealand as well is that that data set kind of misses a little bit so mm. i've just seen that childline for example brought out saying that um sexual abuse in families has gone up threefold since coronavirus um from mm. their, their helpline contacts and we're not really seeing as much of that data released here so it's sometimes quite useful to have that data to really inform practice and, and hear from that to know likely because the countries do have similar, particularly similar issues that we can learn from from those. So so yeah, so that was kind of my background into it and why I went into the NSPC and, and loved the work. And it was setting up a working with a training unit and consultancy arm, which we went out and we delivered services to really, I suppose, lay the pathway and innovate on some areas where organizations hadn't really thought about safeguarding. So it was kind of at that, that forefront of it, which was really exciting
1: yeah awesome and what about you kim
0: yeah i mean you know i'd obviously echo the points that phil said particularly about Childline. like new zealand at the moment we haven't got anything like that and
1: um oh that's interesting i didn't know that
0: so well not in terms of a generic sense we do have um sort of youth line and other sort of um charitable organizations that run great services of support but they've all got a sort of specialist focus, if you like, mm-hmm. rather than um, sort of something equivalent of child line where it was, you know, quite broad um, yeah. and things like that. But um, yeah, I think for me, uh, with NSPCC, basically I had been working with um, offenders in what's called correctional facilities here. and um, And a lot of them, you know, I mean, it was choices that they'd made that got them where they were ended up. But ultimately, there was no denying that there was um, that golden thread, if you like, of child abuse, um, maltreatment, ACEs, all of that in their backgrounds. And um, I just wanted to go much more into that preventative line. And so,
3: um,
0: one of the areas that I tended to work in, certainly initially, and kept as a lead area, was. in the UK, they have well, the names change, but basically, safeguarding mm-hmm. boards for each area, and they are yeah. multi agency boards that monitor and keep on track what's happening in the areas across all organizations. So, I worked for them as um, one of their sort of training coordinators and, and things like that. So, mm-hmm. um, that was basically um, a role with NSPCC but also uh, then at that time initially shared with the local council in that area and then basically it just went full on NSPCC and um, yeah I worked with a lot of the local safeguarding children's boards they were then called and now the names changed Um, and then just sort of worked into many of the sectors that we've talked about and I think that was one of the the real strengths of NSPCC, certainly at that time and, and as far as I'm aware since, has been that it's, it has that ability to use its staff to um, really serve all sectors, but it uses the right staff for each sector. Mm. So it would draw on, certainly when Phil and I were there and the team we all had our areas of specialism and it didn't stop you from working in another area and it didn't mean that you always had those areas, but it meant that you always had input to work happening in those areas so that even if you weren't the lead, the people fronting it were working to your guidance and your, your oh, yeah. information. Um, and I think that was the real strength of, of how they went around things. and. Um, you know, at the end of the day, they are a big charity. They're, they are a charity and they need supporting, but they also had a number of departments and services that they could call on. So, Phil mentioned Childline, but there was also a lot of um, sort of therapeutic services that they ran and delivered. So, there would be learnings or evaluation data that would come from those provisions as well. That was used to um, inform training and consultancy, and, and training and consultancy became a massive arm of the charity. Mm.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting to get that that insight. Um, a lot of the uh, child safeguarding and um, child safe organisations resources and um guides and and things like that that are available uh, in Australia if you look through their their reference lists and, and those sorts of things uh, there'll they'll be always at least a few um, pieces of material that have uh, are referencing the uh, work from the NSPCC so it's yeah really interesting to to get that additional sort of information on what it, um, what it's actually like on the ground uh, over in yeah. the UK um so awesome thanks very much for, for going into that uh, and I guess probably sticking with that same sort of idea about some of those differences, we've already mentioned that uh, you've both uh, emigrated out of the, the UK, Kim into New Zealand, Phil here into Australia. Um, so I am interested to hear how child safeguarding is different uh, in Australia and New Zealand compared uh, compared with the UK. Um, we think uh, Phil, maybe we'll start with you this time and, and um, Kim definitely, please feel free to, to jump in and extend on Phil's comments and those sorts of things. But um, yeah, just to get us started. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Yeah. No problem. um I think interestingly, the UK, I suppose, has been a little bit further ahead in this space in the sense that it was brought more to the forefront in the early sort of 2000s and 1990s, where safeguarding was significant issues, hmm. um, and therefore statutory regulations and laws for organisations came in in around actually 2000, 2004, following some really high-profile deaths of children and young people. Yeah, absolutely horrendous
1: so, cases there
3: yeah
2: yeah some significant ones and I think the media really highlighted them and it kind of forced the government to, to change it in the right way rightly so and I think the uk's kind of been a sort of a little bit ahead on the journey then Australia mm. um and that for me i suppose is what's really helped is kind of knowing the path in the uk the the mistakes i suppose we made in this journey and this approach and what drew me over to Australia was that absolutely we' we're, we're, we're catching up over here in terms of the uk and mm-hmm. and' other, and America and and Canada, which are kind of leading the world, I suppose, in this space. Um, But for me, the fundamental and interesting part is that if I could help change Australia's track in not making the same mistakes the UK has, um, and the reason I say that is because I do think in the UK we began to overcomplicate safeguarding, and Mm -hmm. this is where we've seen a potential Mm -hmm. rise back in safeguarding cases and abuse, because people on the ground just don't know what safeguarding is now, because it is so broad. It encompasses mental health a number of other issues with some of the people I talk to are going I just don't know where it starts and stops in the boundaries so Mm -hmm. that's that kind of where I saw that journey and I think for me in Australia the difference is what's kind of leading the way potentially is if I do love the 10 national principles Mm -hmm. um I don't think by any means that they're really simple to understand but I think once you get the concepts of them they're really great and what I love is that by having 10 principles it means that no matter what sector you're in whether you're in sport whether you're in education whether you're a faith-based organization, you must engage with these 10 principles. Um, in the UK, and I know Kim will probably reflect this, is that um, we had different standards for education as we did for sport, as we did for um, other sectors. And uh, even though that tailored approach might have seemed great, I think what it's led to is a little bit of confusion and multi-different standards, which make it really, really quite quite challenging. And for, for, for people, maybe just a lifeguard who are understanding how do I keep kids safe, um, they'll be doing differently as they are if they work as a teaching assistant as well. So I like the concept that Australia has developed these 10 national principles. For me, the the proof will be in the pudding when the um, implementation starts to happen and we start to bring some consistency across the country to to develop this space because that's how you keep kids safe is by keeping it simple and and developing consistency rather than having a range of different things, which is what we're supposed to see in some of the states and territories, which is a, a secondary challenge.
1: Yeah, and I think linking back to uh, one of the points you made earlier about the the potential for rogue agents, I guess, in the safeguarding space, is that uh, with the, the national principles that we have uh, in Australia, the we were expecting them to be mandatory or some sort of grace period, and, and then they become mandatory after a certain amount of time, and um, definitely some states are moving in that way, and Victoria has their own Victorian child safe standards, which are currently mandatory, uh, and they're under review at the moment as well, but the idea of of having them being uh, voluntary and for organisations that choose to to embed them, they'll um, the National Children's Commission talking about the idea that those organisations will become uh, organisations of choice for parents. I think it it really provides that motivation to be in the right space to actually create an environment which is child safe and child friendly because that's in the best interests of children, rather than that's in the best interest of business. Uh, and and if you're doing that it's much more of a compliance based sort of thing Mm -hmm. um so yeah it's interesting that i think all organizations do need to be working towards uh, embedding the national principles um, but having them being uh an absence of a mandatory requirement in most places creates that ability for it to actually be child focused and um and have children being the the priority there which is really good
0: Mm. yeah Um, no for sure i think um just to add into that i think we do talk about being child-focused, and naturally that, that's key amongst it. and um, But I think what underlines all of that, and often gets lost, and, and is a real hook when I'm working with organisations in terms of a bit of a light bulb, is that actually, by looking after child safety in terms of safeguarding and all its forms, you are actually safeguarding the staff and the organization as well. Mm-hmm. So if, whilst we might sort of use the term being child-focused, if you are acting in that way, you are by default potentially safeguarding your staff and your organization as well. So it's actually, um, it's good business sense in itself. So, mm. you know, that that can be the frustrating side when you're this side of the coin, so to speak, is that when people go, oh yeah, it is, it's important to us but it's not a priority right now because we haven't got the budget or we haven't yeah. got that. And you're thinking, well, the, there's that question ethical, you know, responsibility, mm-hmm. um, so to speak, in terms of whether it's legislated, mandated or not. But there's also that component of you can't actually afford not to be doing this mm. because when it goes wrong, it can go severely wrong and yeah. all that investment into brands and products and services and reputation, that can take seconds to destroy as yeah. much as it can take years to build up. And I think, you know, we've all worked with various organisations that have been burnt, basically, mm-hmm. whether it's through elements of naivety or through actually no fault of their own, so to speak. But it's... um very few are able to sort of be the phoenix out of the ashes in those situations. So I think it's it's safeguarding and child protection is an element that can be driven by legislation and can be mandated. And I think they're brilliant for helping um, push people that aren't taking those steps mm-hmm. to do something. Um, and I think they also open up a door for accountability where there is, clear negligence and practice and things like that yeah but I, I think really for me it just boils back to that ethical responsibility that we shouldn't need these drivers in 2020 Agreed. Yeah. you know when you're when you're dropping your kid off for daycare or for school or for whatever quite naturally parents assume that their kids are going to be safe yeah and that they're going to be safe from people from physical risks whatever it is they assume that they're going to be safe and the reason that they don't ask those questions is because of that assumption Yeah, definitely you know? and i think organizations not measuring up to that you know it's 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 hard when you see their strap lines or their focus is all about being child-focused and yet you know that this is on the back burner. Mm. That's worrying.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah, I agree. Um, and you're definitely right there about parents. Uh, we know that, that they trust the organization to keep their children safe because they take their children there and they leave their children there and depending on exactly. age and stage of development and, and the type of activity and, and organization, they often leave them there um, while they go and do something else, while they go to work um, or if it's you know sport training or something like that, leave them to, to engage in that rather than actually staying there and maintaining the, being directly responsible for the, the supervision of their children while they're engaged in that activity, they actually leave them in the care of, of those other people. Um, and they wouldn't do that if they didn't think they were safe. Exactly. Uh, and it, it is such a basic thing that often parents don't don't ask about it. They don't even think to ask about it um, because it's just a, a, so basic that that it must be provided. We wouldn't be enrolling our children in these things if if we didn't expect them to be safe while we were doing it. But the yeah. organisation does have an obligation to, I think, to to make sure parents do understand how they're keeping mm-hmm. them safe. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's an interesting one. It's part of the conversations I have with um with clients sometimes when it's the safety of the children um and young people when they're participating in whatever it is. That's the most important thing. It doesn't matter what the service is, what the activity is. If children aren't safe while they're doing it, it's nothing else matters beyond that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that comes back to me about the culture of an organisation. Mm. You know, um, and it's about we you know children and young people having a voice and i i do think that that's um some of the work that phil and otherwise are doing for example that's been some of the huge strengths there is about Mm -hmm. the the young person's voice coming Mm -hmm. through Mm -hmm. but i think that would be if you like my my sharing for parents and carers is one of the first considerations should be how is your voice being heard you know is that voice being heard because you're being asked for your perspectives and for your contributions? Or is it being heard because they're having to bang on someone's door to tell them about stuff? Yeah. And if that's the latter, then that's worrying because mm-hmm. if we're not hearing the small messages, then we're not going to hear the big ones. And kids aren't going to tell us the big messages if they don't trust us with the smaller ones. Yeah. Um and and that's case after case that gets shared and learnings that can be taken you know the biggest safeguard in there is if kids knew that they had a voice and that they felt that they could trust someone with that voice so I think there's definitely um, learnings for organization but I also think for society I think if society understood the prevalence of abuse and the risks of abuse Mm -hmm. um, and how for example the worst case unsafe people actually can target organizations you know it can be a planned methodical process yeah i think as a parent you might feel a bit more in tune to double check that your organization has got safer recruitment in place but i think the mix of the two you know without this kind of clear remit on organizations and with this lack of awareness for the public in terms of abuse risks it just creates this sort of grey middle ground that's actually really really volatile and, and is absolutely ripe for exploitation by unsafe people yeah
1: um yeah we have uh, in each state and territory in australia uh different working with children checks that um, need to be done before someone is able to to be employed to work with children and there's a really common misconception in the the general community that if someone has one of those checks, it means they're a good person. Um, yeah. So in Queensland, it's it's called a blue card and you receive a positive notice. And people interpret that as being basically, if you've got one, you're a positive person. Uh, yeah. And then in the conversations we have, and, and hopefully um, all the organizations we talk to, they understand that that all it means is that there's no documented reason for us to already know that you pose a risk to children and therefore shouldn't have this job or shouldn't be it should be ineligible from being able to hold this position and you can just see that massive disconnect between the general community and their perception of of what that check does uh, and and what it actually does in practice and um, yeah i think that really highlights that sort of uh, I don't want to say misunderstanding, that's quite harsh, but, um, yeah, the, the lack of knowledge or what you were talking about, the lack of knowledge about the prevalence uh, of mm. uh, child exploitation, definitely. And so a lot more needs to be done, I think, for people to understand what those checks actually do and do not do. And it's something that I talk about a lot um, with organizations. Yeah. Yeah, just-
3: um,
1: and... Phil and I have mentioned have gone back and forth a bit talking about the national principles. I'm showing my naivety a bit here, but uh, does New Zealand have something comparable or similar to that, um, either in place or in development? Uh, no. It is, it
0: is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, how do I put this? But yeah, no. Okay. Um, I feel better about my question now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No naivety there. It's um. Sadly, you know, New Zealand's got a lot of strengths. Don't get me wrong. There's Mm -hmm. some we we do some really good stuff here for sure. And um, I'm very very passionate about how safeguarding and child protection can grow in New Zealand. Um, But it's it's got a dark side to it. You know, we're we're one of I think fifth worst OECD. What is it OECD? OECD. That's it OECD. I nearly went out with OCB, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. we're, you know, still, I mean, they're long-standing stats and things, and, you know, it'd be nice to see some newer stats, but in general, whatever statistics, whatever research you look at, New Zealand's at the top of the list, really, you know, we're in the top five for maltreatment mm-hmm. and abuse. We've got some of the worst sexual violence and mm. family violence uh, statistics going, and things like that. And I think there's no um, denying that there's a clear like relevance of our dark side picture yeah. to the lack of legislation, guidance, influence, and things like that. I mean, we've really. It was 2014 that they introduced the Children Act, and that was the first piece of legislation that talked about organisations needing to have a child protection policy, for example, or that Mm. there was a bit more in there about the safer recruitment and the police checks, Mm. but they hold similar gaps and flaws to points that you've already highlighted, and even if you look at the um, child protection policy component in that legislation, that's really applicable to organisations that are government funded or are being commissioned by organisations that, are, you know, government funded. Yeah. So really, it should be government funded Children's Act 2040. It's not the Children's Act. <laughs> yeah, if it was for sense. the children, then that those measures need to be across the children's workforce, not just those that are you know of, of a certain stream of funding or a certain body so to speak so uh, I think there's still um, lots of things to be looked at and lots of areas to grow um, mm-hmm. and I think yeah I think that's that's part of the hurdle for me is that it's almost we still look at things very individual you know like this is the tool that we need so a child protection policy they all need a policy, they all need this. Mm. And actually all of those tools only work when they're brought together holistically and yep. you look at it as an organisation. There's no point in having safer recruitment processes in place if on the floor there's no code of conduct. Yeah. You know? Yep. So everything has to intertwine and align. And I think um, that's not only are we missing legislation, but we miss legislation That unites all of that, and that, and that also sets clear guidance. So it's all very well bringing out legislation, but most of us aren't lawyers or legal eagles, and Mm -hmm. you know, trying to interpret that can be quite complex. And I think certainly for Phil and I, this is some of what we found in the UK. And certainly when Phil was talking about it being over, you know, um, complex, it it just got to the point where a lot of the failings weren't actually failings in legislation. It was failings around understanding and applying legislation and people getting confused and stuff. So I think one of the areas that came out of that was any legislation coming out being supported by guidance document, mm. which has been a really, really brilliant resource and has been a massive strength. still needs areas of improvement because isn't necessarily in layman's terms most of the time but it's still um you know a a huge benefit to have and and i see that in new zealand you know with our safer recruitment sort of guidelines the policy stuff etc you know we're in 2020 now those laws came in in 2014 we've still got a huge amount of organisations that should have policies and don't, yeah. and they don't even know about that law or things like that. And those that do have them, it's still pretty much the classic old school, you know, policy on the shelf or propping a door. It's not actually being implemented. So, yeah, there's there's still some work to do, but no, we're we're way behind in terms of, Principles and things
1: like that. So. Uh, okay, and um, yeah, Phil sort of was talking about. Uh, I think alluding to the same idea around the national principles and, and sort of the way they have been drafted here in Australia, is that they they are applicable to any organisation. They um, they're, they're drafted at a really specific level uh, to be useful across different sectors, but also workable. Whether you're the the largest early education provider in Australia or uh, a very small, um, what would it be, even be there, like just a, a small PT um, trainer, a, a single, like a mm-hmm. solo business, just mm-hmm. working with maybe five or six children. These principles, they, they're equally applicable in both those situations and everywhere in between. Um, whether that very small solo business knows about them, same issue that, that you're yeah. having there, is, is a different matter, um, but it does provide that that um, coverage, I think is probably a good way to put it um yeah and, and there is more and more guidance coming out we have the national office for child safety um at the federal level which is um, meant to be or well, that's not quite fair <laughs> um, it, which is uh has been established to help um you know be in charge of that no and it oversight's not not their their mandate but provide resources and, and those sorts of things to to help with um organizations understanding their responsibility uh, and it is in those, their early days, but they're coming out with some really high-quality uh, resources already. There's the um, uh, a complaints handling guide, uh, which maintains the rights of children throughout that process, uh, which is a really high-quality resource, and it's it's very comprehensive. Um, I'm really? sure Phil's probably taken a look at that, and can can attest yeah. to, to how comprehensive it is as well. Absolutely,
2: um, um, I'm good i didn't jump in there and say yeah absolutely it's been brilliant and the one thing i was probably saying with that though as well and this is with reviews i've done of organizations when i've come in with lime culture and we, we do these sort of reviews and i'm sure you guys do exactly the same when you come out is that safeguarding has always been for me and i see this in every single report i've generally written in kind of developed in a piecemeal fashion and the way i see that is by we bolt on little sections and then we suddenly have a really a structure which kind of maybe isn't as smooth as it could be and my sort of plea to organizations and what's been wonderful about setting up a unit with the ymca is by starting from scratch it's helped us develop our own framework which has been one thing i'd probably say fundamental when you're starting on this journey is people put a policy in place to start off then they do a bit of complaint handling then a bit of empowerment then a bit of training and they kind of don't really complement each other or they kind of interlink whereas having a framework which really maps out your three-year plan and a strategy which we've just developed with the YMCA, and again recommend to organizations is plan your journey so that actually your training framework and your competency model for your training fits in to identify how your policy aligns with your procedures how that aligns with empowerment activities complaint handling because otherwise it's just kind of lots of little bolt-ons and that's something which like i said that complaint handling guidance from the government absolutely essential and what we've done is we've brought that in to adapt it to the why and then made it fit within our procedures our policy so it's not just a slight yeah a bolt-on as such and that's I suppose my biggest learning in this space is develop your framework and then roll out from there and and get someone in to help you do that if, you, if you're not comfortable in doing it yourself because fundamentally it took, it took me and I've worked in this space since then too many years um, <laughs> and yourself, Brad, way too many years, that it, even in the why it took us seven months to develop a really comprehensive framework, which I can now show to a lifeguard, to an early years coordinator to my board members who understand our framework and know what our plan is for the next three years. That's not a small process, but for me, that will mean we will stop those hiccups along the way. Yeah. Um, and that was that's my advice to organisations is get someone in to, to support you to facilitate that event because it's not easy when you're on in the inside to do it yourself. You need to have someone looking on the outside and bringing you up and above and that helicopter view as such.
1: Yeah, I think it's really yeah, good definitely. advice.
0: If I could just chip yeah i think just to chip in on the back of um what Bill was saying there, i think the other fundamental in that is um it helps organize organizations recognize their unique vulnerabilities so um you know there will be certain vulnerabilities within the why that may not be in other youth service provisions hmm. and and things like that so for example some of the services that i work with are very strong in serving children with additional needs etc now we all know that children with additional needs can be an increased vulnerability Mm -hmm. but it also means that your tailor your safeguarding solutions need to be tailored to that audience yeah definitely how how is a child with additional needs meant to follow that safeguarding guidance if it's not in a format that's tailored to their needs so you know you you Sometimes it's even within those organizations where they have a very specific focus. They lose that focus when it comes to planning their safeguarding measures and stuff. So, what Phil said is absolutely quite critical to it all, really.
1: Awesome. Um, Let's change gears just a little bit. Uh, And Phil, I did mention in your introduction there that you uh, you headed up child safeguarding for Arsenal Football Club. Um, so my, my experience in Australia is that the emphasis on protecting children in sport is at the local club level. Um, but I'm interested if you can tell us about uh, the importance of keeping children safe in sport, uh, but particularly at that national club level. And Kim, I know you'll have some really good insight into this as well.
2: No, definitely. Um, Yeah, sport and safeguarding, a huge passion of mine and probably my area of, sort of niche, and it is a, a real niche because sports do function outside of the realm of, of the normal safeguarding arena and it's not that they're different but in terms of that conjunction whereas in a school or education sector where you'd say you never drive a kid home mm-hmm. because that's fundamentally you don't need to be able to do that in sport sports can't function if you if it don't happen in that approach so it's where i suppose safeguarding and sport really struggled over the years to align because people came in with a very I suppose, social work, not criticism that, but of that approach to it that you can't give a child a lift where, and you can't touch a child. Mm-hmm. Whereas in gymnastics, to give a child to do their first flip, you need to touch them on the backside to make sure that they don't break their neck. So it, it really, I suppose, paralleled those, those two aspects of, of, of how we bring safeguarding in sport. And when, as you all both know, working in the sport arena is that unless you sport speak sports language, Sports people generally will switch off to you. So you have to make it relatable and understandable to their sector.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, in terms of from a national level, I know, and you would all have seen recently, obviously, this will come out a few months later, but Athlete A has been a documentary on Netflix detailing horrendous abuse of athletes across, um, in terms of USA gymnastics, but that led to a sort of um, a wave of such um, in the UK and Gymnastics Australia suffering mm-hmm. that sort of outcry now about athletes having experienced not sexual abuse to the high level but actually the fundamental emotional abuse weighing being called useless worthless too big to overweight which leads to other safeguarding issues such as eating disorders and a range so in terms of actually bringing it up to that national level and i know that in australia we've got our national sports organizations um who generally have a safeguarding manager a majority of them do and i I sit on the um a community of practice with them and share some knowledge and support it's really i suppose a hard piece because of the way sport is structured sport is the most unregulated activity compared to any other sector yet it's the second highest um category where children and young people are are partaking so education is where most children take part Mm -hmm. then you have sport and sport is unregulated and i suppose in terms of a societal shift until we see a government shift in making sport more regulated effectively children and young people are going into places which which you can be you're going to be a local footy club and you're going to be a coach um and you can set up with a, a bag of balls and and start coaching someone if you're an offender that for me is a and where we've worked with isn't an, an easy target because yep. generally people trust sports and if i can groom and use your your children to say effectively um i can make you an next olympian the next kathy gray which parent particularly those which are more vulnerable aren't going to say actually well why wouldn't i want to do that yep. um So there's great, like Kim talked about, that vulnerabilities in sport is is, is significant. And that piece about being unregulated for me is is really where there's a gap, but that doesn't mean that sports can't be safe. And I know there's lots of work within sports whereby they're working towards creating, again, effective frameworks, policies, training. The key thing, like Kim really alluded to, and you did as well, Brad, is around that code of conduct, Mm -hmm. that safe behaviors, and it's something we're doing at the Y at the moment, is introducing safe behaviors. Because what you generally do when you come into an organization in sport as well as you get a code of conduct this is how you behave with kids you read it you, or you don't <laughs> and you sign it and you move on um no one really teaches you how to actively engage and safely work with kids but we teach you a two or three day course to be a coach or an umpire but no one seems to teach us how to we work with children in their age and stage of development which you talked about brad so mm. for me that's a, a fundamental shift and gap is teaching people around safe behaviors what does it mean when a kid asks you on Facebook? How do you safely touch somebody? That's not stuff they're doing in their coaching qualifications and applying officiation and qualifications. So it's just a shift we need to move towards to support them.
3: Mm. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah, and you mentioned quite a few things I would like to, to pull them mm. up, but we won't have time Probably to do all yeah. of them. <laughs> um, but I can't remember the, the specific case number off the top of my head, but you you mentioned specifically the coach making promises about um, the Olympics and that sort of thing, and mm. that's not an abstract um, idea that you've just plucked from 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 the sky. That was one of the case studies they looked at with the Royal Commission with uh, in Australia with um, Swimming Australia, and, and there was a coach who was basically the head. I think I'm pretty sure it was the head coach um, who was basically the gatekeeper that um, these young swimmers. Their Olympic dreams he held in his hands, and he was also sexually assaulting children. Uh, and and he it was just becoming indispensable in their lives. if you want to achieve your Olympic dream, this is the way you have to get there, um, which is yeah, aw- awful to go into any sort of detail about, um, but it is the work that we do and what we're we're working to prevent. Um so it's it's not an abstract idea. it's we know it's real. we We spent like the Royal Commission spent quite a bit of time looking at an exact case where that's happened. Uh, and thinking about um, in particularly that community sport level you're talking about and where coaches come from, quite often the um, at the, the very grassroots level, the thing that makes them qualified to, to coach the team is that they have a child on the team. That's, that's the reason they're there. They need coaches. And um, in some states and territories in Australia, I know I mentioned some shortcomings of working with children checks, but if... Your children is uh, if you're volunteering at, at somewhere that your child is involved in you don't even need working with children check to do that um so there's uh yeah a lot of a lot of holes and a lot of risks that i think a lot of parents uh, and probably the organizations as themselves don't even realize that they're that they're carrying from there um how about in in new zealand is it the same sort of thing in new zealand kim or is it a bit different over there
0: uh I'd say uh, similar, but again, if anything, we're a bit behind, but just sort of um, following on what you were saying and again, keeping that theme of of settings, knowing their vulnerabilities, you know, Mm. it's no coincidence that the most vulnerable have been our elite athletes, you know, and that's, it's not to say that we shouldn't be worried about safeguarding at grassroots level, absolutely. But it, it it's almost for a little bit in New Zealand that where safeguarding is getting uh, traction in sport, the focus is very much at grassroots, and and that's great to see because we haven't had much in that way. However, for sports sectors, um, their most vulnerable are their elite athletes, mm. and and for various factors around that, and I think you know the the. USA documentaries, the Royal Commission, uh, you know, New Zealand's not been immune for some of the gymnastic staff and mm-hmm. things like that. All of these expose um, unhealthy cultures around our athletes. Um, and in the worst case, for some, it's been sexual abuse, but actually, what's set the foundation for that has been the emotional abuse and the, the physical abuse and the cultures around that that's permitted. Um, further exploitation in terms of grooming and exploitation around sexual offending and things like that. Mm. So um, I think again it's just knowing your sectors, knowing your vulnerabilities and where you're at. And I think Mm. in New Zealand um, there's definitely been a shift in our sports sectors about looking at um, safeguarding and and stuff like that and um, that's great to see but it kind of comes back to my my previous point that i i worry slightly that we're still looking at the tools that are needed or reinventing the tools so i know some of the measures coming out are looking at further training whether it's online or face-to-face which is brilliant because without that training everything is theoretical yep. so yeah you know it, it does help but again coming back to what um phil was saying that training is very much about how do you identify a child that could be vulnerable there's still nothing really there about teaching the sector how to be safe or what what is safe practice or how to go around things. And um, and they're they're as high of vulnerabilities as being able to recognize what's going on for a child. So um, I I think that needs to be looked at a little bit more. And I think,
1: and correct me if I'm wrong, I think that you might have actually developed some tools, a, a safeguarding toolkit specifically for sport and recreation. Is that right?
0: Yes, yeah, um, yeah. no, I appreciate you mentioning that. The, um, I've actually developed a sport and recreation safeguarding toolkit. Mm. So I know through my engagement with various um, sports sectors and regional bodies, etc., there was a strong message coming back from grassroots very much that they wanted more guidance and support around safeguarding Again, coming back to what we were saying about legislation guide, like not knowing if they needed a policy or not, and if so, what did it have to contain? Yeah. Um, and and a lot of what was there, I found a lot of what was in place already kind of told them what they needed, but didn't tell them how to do that or explain why. Mm-hmm. So, and and safer recruitment is a classic example that unless you understand the purpose of why you are putting in place, safer recruitment, it can seem incredibly over the top, particularly if you just want a volunteer for an hour or two a week and then suddenly you've got all this to go through and and you've got someone that you've known for 20 years, you've worked with them and elsewhere, why can't they just pop along and help us out, you know? To suddenly say they've got to jump through all these hoops can seem um massively over the top but when you understand how that um can be exploited and not necessarily by that person you know but it very well could be mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. then you get a lot more buy-in. so i made sure that with this toolkit that it didn't just give the practical resources it actually gave that um guidance and explanation as to what the risks were and then how people could apply uh, measures around that and really try to tailor that to school. I mean, it's very much a, a basic level, like it doesn't go into the elite athlete staff or things. Hopefully, as I grow, there are things that we I can do as yeah. follow-ons. Yeah. Um, but at the moment, it, it keeps it at that groundwork. But I think the unique element about it is it's designed to help people strengthen those individual tools that we've talked about, but it's more about bringing those together so that clubs can start creating a safeguarding culture, really, um, because in Australia, UK, Canada, America, all of all of our areas, um, we we tend to repeat the wheel a little bit yep. of yeah. Um, oh, what what's the need? Oh, people haven't got policies or they're not following their policies. What should we do? Another policy template, you know. <laughs> Let, let's put that out. And, and we're losing sight of asking, well, why haven't they implemented what we provided before? Mm. Maybe there was a flaw with that policy template, maybe. But the, the absolute core of it always relates to the environment. And if leadership aren't picking up these resources, if they're not advocating them, if they're not implementing it as part of their culture, then, then that safeguarding practice isn't going to become part of everyday thinking and practice. Yeah. And that's what we need to work to. So um, I was quite keen for the toolkit to really look at the concept of a culture and, and what needs to come from that. Um, and I just hope with some of the growth in safeguarding around sport in New Zealand that um, that, that concept of a culture is, is kept because... Um, whilst it's great to see some of the things coming through and it genuinely is, um, I I am also slightly apprehensive that we're still too busy focusing on the individual tools rather than why aren't the tools being used Mm. um, rather than just replacing them, you know?
1: Yeah, and you made a really good point there about the culture of the organization. I I find myself saying a lot that um, or I guess it's, it's my personal view that the, the culture of an organisation exists either because of the, uh, intentionally, because of the leadership or because of their inaction. But either way, the, re, the culture that exists is the responsibility of the, um, that executive leadership of the organisation. Uh, and if it's not maintaining that child focus, if keeping children safe isn't seen as a priority, um, ultimately that responsibility does fall back to to what that leadership is is what message they're sending um to all the people within the organization obviously everyone within the organization has uh an obligation has responsibility to keep children safe but it's um you know it needs to be front and center and and actually be um, shown to be important um, by that leadership and uh really encouraging people to to be active to embrace that and to turn that into the actual culture of the organization
0: yeah definitely and if i could just um add on to that what I think is really quite critical there is how our organisations are funded as well Mm -hmm. so for example it may not be a funders um, area in terms of child protection or safeguarding but if they are funding organisations to provide services to kids then I think we need to be a bit tighter about what measures are in place whether they're legal requirements or not there is that ethical um, responsibility. So I would like for our funders to be thinking not just have they met their legal requirements, but actually is this service that we're potentially looking at funding, are they demonstrating ethical practice? Mm. And if we are looking to donate or you know support them financially in order to be able to provide provisions to children, then those services should be able to reflect some of the measures they've got in place to protect those kids and to make sure that their environments are safe.
1: Yeah, it's a really good point too. Yeah. Um, there's lots more to talk about, but um, looking at time, we will need to start to, to wrap up. Um, so as we do transition to that closeout, I, I end the podcast by asking every guest the same two questions. Um, so I would like to hear from both of you. Um, but it's okay if uh, if you do have the same answers. Um, so don't feel like you need to quickly think of something else. Um, but the first question, um, where are my questions? There we go. Uh, so the first question is, if you could share one piece of advice or knowledge for organizations which are only just beginning their child safe organization journey, what would it be? And Kim, I'll, I'll start with you. Mm,
0: it's... it's kind of like which one do i go for i mean
1: it doesn't have to be the best just just one piece of advice
0: no exactly i'm just a bit torn because you've got your classics of you know think of it as your child or what would you want for your child and i think everyone can relate to that so i think i'm going to kind of flip that a little bit and think about if you are just an organization setting up and Mm -hmm. what you need to think about i would really advocate the thought process of you can't afford not to do this, you mm. know? Um, it can be very easy to think that this isn't a priority or, okay, let's just get a policy in place and then when we're a bit more established, we can look at training our staff or we can look at it and you can look at it as a step-by-step process depending on the success of your business or mm-hmm. your service or your organisation. Um, but you're at risk at every single step there. And, you know, if you're starting out, there's no better time to set the culture of your organization than at the beginning. Yeah, so completely agree. that's a prime time to be putting things in place. And they don't have to be expensive. Um, and there's lots of resources out there to help people, even if it's just free resources mm-hmm. whilst they start off. Um, but it's just taking those and making them proportionate to the the service that's being developed it doesn't have to be hard or complex but definitely think about it from the beginning
1: awesome you can't afford not to do this that's exactly really good takeaway awesome what about you phil
2: i'm going to probably loop back to where i started um which is map your plans So absolutely like kim said you can't afford not to do this so the, the two key parts for that is actually like i said develop your strategic response to this by mapping it out and getting someone in to support you do this process mm-hmm. so you don't do it in the piecemeal approach and that's fundamentally safeguarding costs money mm-hmm. um people don't like sometimes to hear this but if you want to work with children and young people you need to assign a budget to keeping kids safe it yep. is a key area so my biggest piece on that is get someone in. into so two pieces and um, to support you plan your journey Put a budget line against safeguarding, so you know how much of your overall spend is actually put towards children and young people. Because what I generally see is that lots of organisations might have 80% participation from children and young people, but spend less than a percent on safeguarding activities. Which is the, you'll see that from weighing itself, it's fundamentally flawed.
1: Yeah, awesome. Thank you very much. Another really good piece there. Uh, And then flipping to the other question and Phil this time I'll get you to to answer first. Mm -hmm. Um, So very similar question, but this time we're going to think about parents and carers. What do you think is important for parents and carers to know uh, about keeping children safe in organizations?
2: Yeah, I suppose as an uncle, what I always get my sister to always ask whenever she goes in is, tell me how you keep kids safe here. Mm -hmm. A really simple question, but actually your staff should be able to articulate that in a way which is really meaningful. Um, if they can't, I think it's as simple as I to my sisters, walk away that actually there is a point, this is, a, this is not just a small area, this is actually your child's life um, and the impact that we've seen on abuse are significant. Mm-hmm. So choose organizations which are putting children's needs first and sometimes that might mean it's a little bit further down the road or a little bit, a couple more bucks more to spend on that session, but actually in the long run, you're getting a really good quality service and your child is being kept safe and they're able to feel safe and be safe, which is the real key aspect of it.
1: Awesome. Thank you. And Kim?
0: Um, Yeah, I I kind of, um, more lines to that, but basically think about what messages you're being told from the organisation. So an organisation will tell a parent or carer The things that are important to the organisation, so for example, how they work, how they operate, their pricing structure, etc., but also what they think parents or carers find important, so the convenience of a service or the flexibility of a service. So really, if safeguarding and how they capture the child's voice isn't one of those core messages, then, then I, as a parent or carer, would be worried because I would think that was something that the organisation should be proud of sharing. Mm. And that would be my top priority as a parent, would be wanting to know that my most precious thing in the world is safe. Mm -hmm. Um, So really, I think that's it. Think about what what are the key messages that organisation is telling you. And if they're not telling you that safeguarding is part of that, then as Phyllis said, that's when you should be thinking about looking elsewhere really.
1: Definitely, another good piece. Yeah, it's it's really difficult for organizations to find things they're not looking for. And I mm. think that's sort of, that's coming back to what you're saying there, that if it's not registering as a risk, then they're probably not looking to mitigate that risk in any particular way.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Awesome, all right. Well, um, thank you very much uh, for joining me. Um, Kim, if people would like to learn more about uh, about you and about holistic safeguarding, what is the best way to do that? And how can they get in contact with you?
0: Um, Well, I think the best way is just to go to the website, so it's Mm -hmm. holisticsafeguarding.com and all the contact details are on the website um, as well as links to service that uh, is offered, etc. So um, we do sort of free consultancy side. so if people want to just even have a chat about their needs initially and explore what might need support or not and um, then we can do that but there's also uh if you like a shop page element mm-hmm. where there's lots of free resources as well as things like the toolkit that you mentioned and stuff like that and yep. um we're also just branching into e-learning yeah so, so there will ask be about that yep yeah so that we're just starting out on that so there's going to be a link to our sort of new e-learning page so I think like you say this comes out in a couple of months time so by then it should be it should be live hopefully pay. yeah <laughs> all being well um and yeah I think the first courses that are looking to launch is an e-learning for schools so mm-hmm. safeguarding schools because here as Phil mentioned they're top of the tier yet We've got nothing that's really for our school sector here, so I wanted to do something quite tailored to them. Awesome. Um, And the other one is a course on safeguarding children with additional needs. So Uh our disability sector, again, a sector that's hugely vulnerable and often overlooked, so um, we're looking at launching that, and I'm really pleased that we've got people like Special Olympics, etc., that are piloting that at the moment. So um, that's really pleasing.
1: Excellent. Uh, and Phil, if people want to learn more about the wise approach to child safeguarding or about you and Lime Culture Community Interest Company, what is the best way to do those things and how can they get in contact with you?
2: Yeah, perfect. Um, in terms of me, probably LinkedIn is the easiest because my surname's quite long so I'll be on the end of all the part of this podcast <laughs> in terms of the brief. So yep, maybe just nice. Google Phil Dogger in the, in the LinkedIn and that's the easiest way to get hold of me, I suppose. Um in terms of the why, if you go to ymca.org.au forward slash safe, mm-hmm. you'll see all our resources which are available on there. And Lime Culture is LimeCulture.co.uk, and you'll see all the resources and services provided around sexual violence and safeguarding.
1: Yep, and that's .co.uk but you do provide services .co. in Australia as well?
2: Yeah, across yep. the world, actually. I'm yep. lucky to fly around the world, which is a, a nice part of that role.
3: <laughs>
1: okay, awesome. Um, So, I will put all of that that information, all those websites and, and links and things like that in the notes of uh, the podcast. So, um, definitely check those out if you would like to learn more about Kim and Phil or reach out and have a conversation with either of them. But thank you very much for joining me on the Child Safeguarding Podcast. I'm Brad Pointing, Principal Consultant for Pointing Consulting and Advisory, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn by searching Bradley Pointing, uh, and you can follow PCA on Twitter, which is at Pointing CNA. So that's P-O-Y-N-T-I-N-G C and
3: A, and we'll see you next time on the Child Safeguarding Podcast.